eye tracking, mindful reading, and more. Actually, there's two mores in this episode. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs. I'm an instructional coach at a local school district. I recently wrapped up a doctorate degree at Utah State University, and I'm someone who just wants to know more about reading. Welcome to the podcast. If this is your first episode or your 20-somethingth episode, I appreciate you taking the time to learn a little bit more about literacy research and how it might inform your practice. The best way you can support the show is by leaving it a review on whether it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. That's a great way to let me know and let other folks know that, hey, this is content that's uh, worth consuming, that it's, it's worth your time, a benefit to you and to your students. Likewise, you can also always share the podcast with a colleague. I think that's probably my favorite way of help getting the word out. And the podcast is growing really rapidly, which thank you. I, I appreciate I appreciate the, the listenership. That's not something I necessarily anticipated when I started this a couple years ago. So getting to today's episode, today I actually get to interview two people that I know really well and that I was I was really excited to record this episode. Joining me on today's show is Dr. Kathleen Moore, and she is a professor of language and literacy at Utah State University. She also was the chair of my dissertation, so I've worked really closely with Dr. Moore for the last three or four years. This is our second publication that we've done together. If you want to go and listen to us talk, you can go back to the episode we talked about dyad reading. It was like episode 17 or 18 or something. The other person on the, joining me on the interview today is Dr. Eric Moore, who is a professional practice associate professor at Utah State University. And the three of us co-authored a paper entitled Mindful Reading, Eye-Tracking Evidence for Goal-Directed Instruction, which was published in late 2020. Dr. Moore and Dr. Moore are two of my favorite people. They're very entertaining to be around and uh, discuss with. I had a great time recording this episode. I hope you have a great time listening to it. Enjoy the show, and afterwards, stick around for my two cents. All right, Drs. Kit and Eric Moore, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. I'm really glad to have both of you here today, two of my favorite people. (laughs) And uh, this is an article that we actually co-authored together that we're talking about. The article is Mindful Reading, Eye-Tracking Evidence for Goal-Directed Instruction. And it was published in the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy um, at the end of of last year in 2020. So the major claim of our journal article (laughs) is that goal-directed reading instruction assists developing readers in comprehending texts. So where did your interest in goal-directed reading instruction develop? And then why, why did you both feel that it was something worth writing about and then be willing to pull me in on the project? So for me, it came out of my work with secondary and post-secondary students, first post-secondary students, but then later secondary students, when I realized that we were living in a literate society not an illiterate society, but illiterate in the sense that people can read, but would prefer not to. So for most of my 42 years in education, I saw that most of my students really didn't want to read, so I had to help them with specific goals. So a goal, for instance, in uh, literary analysis, or perhaps even in rhetorical analysis, and that primarily was my focus, in fact, I guess I could say foci, working with both post-secondary and secondary students, I wanted them to think about, well, what does a text say to them, and what does that message say to you and me? So in other words, is there any kind of community message that comes out of this text, be it imaginative, that it could, that is, it could be a poem, a drama, a novel, or a piece of informational text. So I came at this rather from a kind of high level, not specifically from a clinical point of view. So Kit probably has much more to say on the clinical side, and I'll hand it off to her. Thank you. I like the question, Jake, because actually this article 
is a consolidation, a coalescence of several things. As you know, I was working in the neuroscience lab at the university and looking at eye tracking. So I started reading a lot of articles about eye tracking and reading. Then a middle school uh, in the region asked me to come out and help their students do better on their end of year testing and the issue of comprehension and then more narrowly inferencing got me reading more articles. And then I was teaching a class uh, at a district and the district was promoting reading stamina. Minutes of eyes on a page and they were very strict but I think missed the purpose. So um, then at a conference I talked with Freddie Hebert and all of these things led to a concern about how well we're developing comprehenders and how real we talk about what reading is and does for people. You know, you guys pulled me in on this project. It was it was early on in my doc studies. I think it was, you know, it's been two or three mm -hmm. years ago when when this first started. And I was learning learning so much that I didn't really have time to process this specific aspect of it. It just was along with everything else we were doing. But as as we finished the article and as it's been published and as I've spent a lot of time in classrooms this year especially, I almost love this project more now than I did mm -hmm. when we were doing it where, you know, I, I see it as that we, when we read for different purposes, we, we, we construct a different mental model of what mm -hmm. the text is saying and, and that matters a lot for, for instruction. So, and, and we'll get more into that, but it's interesting sort of three different vantage points to sort of say mm -hmm. the same thing that when we're providing reading comprehension instruction that we should we should have a targeted goal we should be have a, something that we're wanting to glean from the text uh, as part of our case for goal-directed reading instruction we, we've coined this term mindful reading so what do we mean by mindful reading and how does it contrast with more of a, a word reading efficiency paradigm of instruction well I, that's a great question and it's important for anyone really teaching reading to have some definition of the kind of reading they want students to be doing. So in our article, we define mindful reading as intentional, engaged, and monitored reading that adds to or challenges what a reader is consciously aware of during a sustained processing of text, which is a mouthful. I would maybe re-term it as value-added reading. But there are lots of terms that people could use, and I think teachers, even parents, might come up with their preferred. Is it productive reading? Is it proficient reading? Attentive? Some people call it metacognitive reading. Engaged. Marianne Wolf, the neuroscientist, calls it deep reading. Um, so one of these, or a combination of terms, is where I think uh, we can settle on a way of promoting more than just word reading accuracy or fast reading or racing as we even talk about word racing in the in the article. So I think it does contrast with what some people would call a shallow focus on getting the words off the page. And, and certainly word reading efficiency matters. We want yeah. students to be able to move through text smoothly and accurately and certainly time in text matters. But I guess maybe what we're arguing is going a step beyond that, that we want efficiency and volume, but we want to do it in a, a targeted way that's um, a directed way so that that's attentive, that's going to have a purpose with it rather than just sheer sheer volume of just mm -hmm. spraying kids with text and hoping <laughs> hoping something sticks. So for me, working with, for instance, secondary students, mindful reading has more of a discussion focus. So yes, they're reading. Yes, they're probably not reading in school. They're reading on their own. But the goal was to determine those two things. What does the text actually say? Who are the characters, for instance? What is the plot? What's the setting and so forth? We wanted to know all of that. But it became more mindful for me when I asked my students to address, well, what is the author suggesting to you, eventually to me, in, in terms of how we are supposed to behave differently, see the world differently, what kind of modifications should we make. And so discussion and coming to some agreement 
on how that author might reflect, how that poet might reflect ideals of a particular society, was the way that I tried to engage my students in terms of mindfulness. I love that. I To me, that sounds like something that aligns very well with the current Common Core state standards of we're going to read to determine explicitly what a text is saying, and then after that we can infer more what, what the author's purpose is, or we can compare and contrast two different texts. But there's there's a sequence to it of, of where we're with comprehension, where we're you know stepping up the ladder of, of abstractness, or I'm not sure what you'd want to call it, but um, but by having that mindful focus, we're able to do that rather than, than just reading, just volume of it. Um, there's two specific studies we talk about, Hebert 2014 and Hyona 2012, Hyona and colleagues 2012, that profile different readers. And I, I love studies that, that do these profiles of different groups of readers. Of so This percentage you know, had this behavior and this percentage did this behavior. Um, what do these two studies suggest about patterns of, of readers and how does that connect back to mindful reading? Well, the two studies highlighted in the article represent two very different kinds of students. Um, Hebert studies with fourth graders, so we could say students who are still in the developmental process of becoming proficient readers. And then the Hyona et al. study looked at adult university readers, so an interesting contrast there. But I think Hebert's look at fourth grade, and as you noted, presents these profiles of readers, was looking at how students read, especially those we expect to be moving from learning to read to reading to learn at that critical fourth grade juncture. The uh, European study, Hyona is uh, from Finland, it's about can we assess how adults read depending on their purpose? So these students were given different reasons to read the text. Sometimes that could be, you know, to answer questions or to write a summary, uh, as happened in this case. So it was about how people read and then how their reading might be directed based on a purpose or a set of instructions. So how does that connect back to mindful reading? So then it gets right to this notion of what is the purpose of the reading, who decides that purpose, uh, and then if there are goals for the reading, um, how does that change the engagement? So especially in the Hyona uh, et al. study, the engagement was different, and that's the, the wonders of eye tracking, that we can see that the brain is processing differently between good readers and weaker readers or goal-directed readers and more generalized reading, even reading for information versus reading uh, for entertainment. All of these kind of specialized issues have been looked at through eye tracking. So I think the two studies are readable to most people. They're not overly dense about the eye tracking measures, but they help, again, show this. They give evidence that readers' eyes on the page are can be processing differently. And the more we know about that, maybe the better we understand what we're hoping to be productive, efficient, intentional, engaged reading. So I'm glad you brought up the eye tracking because this is where it gets really interesting for me. I, when I first started learning about eye tracking, I didn't. Eye tracking doesn't intuitively seem like something that the way the eyes track across the page can tell us uh, how the brain is processing text. So, um, can can either of you describe a little bit about how how we use eye tracking to uh, infer or 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 measure as a proxy the the type of cognitive processing that's going on. Well, Justin Carpenter, years ago, I mean, eye tracking has been around for over 100 years, but I think from a cognitive perspective, since the 1970s, we know that eyes do not track equally linearly across a line of text or down the page. And so eye tracking, in, with its minute measurements of where the eyes are looking, um, evidence the the mind-eye hypothesis, that where the eyes are looking is what the brain is processing. So when eyes stay or fixate on a word or a phrase or jump to another part of the text 
or regress back to a previously read part of the text. They are indications of what the brain is trying to make sense of in the text. So um, most people are aware of a fixation, you know, the relatively stationary time that eyes are gazing um, at a particular spot in the text, and those are called regions of interest. So eye tracking can help us know where the eyes rest and, and process, where the, it jumps and how far, and if those jumps are forward or backwards. Eye tracking can also give us what they call a visual scan path, which we provide in the article an example of. In other words, sort of the map of how the eyes have tracked across and, and then up and down the page. And um, people should, should read more about it because it, the things that they've been able to understand about readers is pretty impressive about how they spend time at the end of a, of a sentence or at the end of a paragraph or how much time is spent on a heading. And these are things we try to help students appreciate and eye tracking um, demonstrates that, the, that good readers at least do attend to those types of things within a text. It's super interesting. So the, you know, the eye tracking is more done in like a laboratory type setting and the student has, um, you know, some sort of glasses or I've, I've never seen an eye tracker, but something uh -oh. that goes on there, you know, that they, they actually wear or no, it's, it's a bar on the computer screen, right? That tracks their yeah. eyes. I've seen that. They yeah. have both options. So they can do it with special glasses, but uh, in our neuroscience lab, the, the mechanism is a bar on the computer and sometimes it's on the top that uh, with infrared lighting, they calibrate the pupil of the eye. And then as the, the participant is instructed to read, it takes these millisecond measurements of where the eyes are and their movements. And then that data, very extensive data, is uh, compiled and then from that extracted these areas of interest and these gaze durations. There are probably 20 different measures that come out of these data. Fixation, fixation duration, mean fixations um, that help to inform what the mental processes were during the reading. Eye tracking is so interesting to me. So we've, we've sort of set two of our big chess pieces on the board here. We've said we're arguing that mindful reading, goal-directed reading matters. And then we've talked a little bit about eye tracking research. So now let's try and, and stitch those two together. And what specific things has eye tracking research revealed about why goal-directed mindful reading matters? Well, I think the eye tracking data indicate that even what we would consider normal reading is far more complex. When you see someone reading, you just see a head and a text, and maybe it's on a screen, but eyes are moving across the text, and we assume beautiful comprehension is happening or engagement is, is evident, but it's not necessarily true. True, they have what they call mindless reading, sort of scanning across. Um, we know that readers skim or scan, or when they're reading on a screen, they tend to zigzag or do an F kind of uh, pattern. So eye tracking helps us to understand that not all reading is created equal and that certainly good readers process text differently than weaker reading. So now that we've talked about eye tracking and, and how it, it, you know, it supports quite a bit about what we know about how the brain is processing text, um, maybe we can get more into some of the practical or, or pragmatic findings of, of what would actually support a, a teacher in the classroom using our, our report. Uh, the reason why I've been deferring to Kit is because she's done quite a bit of work working with doctoral students and working with the director of the lab, the, the lab in which, uh, the FNIRS lab in which we're measuring these different characteristics of readers. But for a typical teacher in the classroom, there are these frequent checks for understanding, right? We want to know, uh, do they understand this particular word in context? Do they understand what this paragraph is delivering to the audience? And then, of course, when it's all said and done, we frequently check for understanding or verify comprehension through writing. So that's where most classroom teachers are probably operating. What we can help do with this set of data is, and, and, and these uh, vocabulary terms that are helping people think about uh, what it means to measure eye tracking, we can begin, I think, helping uh, 
regular classroom teachers think about the technical aspects of the process that's taking place. One specific sentence I, I wanted, I highlight that I wanted to talk about is it says that um, the task the reader has in mind during reading is an important factor in governing how he or she processes and comprehends text. Mindful readers seek goal relevance and coherence, a logical mental representation of a text. Um, so to summarize that, it's saying that, that the task, the task, the purpose for reading is going to frame how comprehension occurs. What practical implications might that have for instruction? Well, one I'd like the teachers to consider is that if we are supporting students in school, unfortunately, students sometimes think that they're reading for us. <laughs> or they're reading to get something done, or they're reading because it's supposed to help them somehow. So I would hope teachers would understand that they can be far more intentional and they want their students to be more intentional about their reading. So the notion of relevance and coherence comes up in, in this literature that we tend to read and attend and remember because all of us have limited working memory capacity, we tend to focus on and remember what aligns with the task in hand, the purpose we have. So if a student is reading for us or is reading to complete a reading, to get through it, you can see that's not really going to support much memory of the, of the text. So I think right up front, teachers can be more um, authentic about what reading is and what it's for and how it functions in the real world. Talk about that with students and get them to realize they're reading for themselves and their goals and their purposes. It's just that in schools we have this sort of, I'm going to guide you through this and help you practice it. So Eric, in a in secondary and post-secondary instruction, how do you see uh, teachers and instructors supporting their students' comprehension with, with better mindful or goal-directed reading? So one common practice that Wiggins and McTeague brought to everybody was the use of the essential question as that big framework that uh, students would need to revisit as they move through a particular unit of instruction. So one example I used with my high school seniors was this one. This is actually the essential question we used. How do the important characteristics of an epic hero reveal the values of his society? We had to learn what those characteristics were, how they revealed themselves, for instance, in a poem like Beowulf or maybe like the Odyssey, and then keep going back to that essential question so that they were coming up with responses that were very likely more specifically theirs, but yes, there was a common point of reference. There are these discrete characteristics of an epic hero. But what does that tell you specifically about how this person represents his culture, his society? And the uh, there was a kind of continuum of responses, and those responses became more nuanced, I think became more significant the more students read various forms of the epic, right? There, there, there was a complexity that emerged in their responses. So that would be an example of how a high-level goal, like an essential question, could get people focused and then refocused periodically. It's a kind of check for understanding as well. And your question started with how, right? Yes. And that's one thing that comes out of the literature that really good how questions and why questions, even right up front, can direct students' reading for a deeper interaction with the text. And yet, we know that teachers, if they don't plan ahead and have this, these larger goals for reading, they end up asking more basic and lower level questions. So being more um, productive questioners and question planners is, is one implication. Eric, I'm so glad you brought up the essential question because that's something I wanted to address too from the elementary perspective of a lot of core reading programs or basils that they're sort of centered on that. There's You read for several weeks and then there's a module, but the, 
the module is all centered around a single essential question. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll see in a classroom where, you know, the first day they're supposed to introduce the essential question and they, they introduce it and they have the students answer it right then. And then, and then that's all they kind of do with it for the next, you know, three weeks. And, and so where it's, it's backwards a little bit where it's meant to introduce the question, but every, every text we read Mm -hmm. is contributing towards that essential question. And then when we finish these different texts we're reading, then we have a rich base to synthesize, but, you know, students aren't necessarily going to connect that these different texts are related unless if we can pull that thread through all of them for them, if we can put them all into a common schema that, you know, these are, so I was, I, I taught a lesson this morning and we were talking about how the remains of people describe, how, what was it, how, how the remains of ancient peoples uh, provide a window into their culture, something yes. similar to that. And we were reading a text about King Tut. They had read a text about Pompeii the week before. Um, and it was, it was fasting to try and help, help us build this, that, that schema or that, that representation of, here's one way, just by reading about King Tut, look at actually how much we also learn about the Egyptians, but, but that purpose helped frame the whole thing. And so I, I, I used to think that the essential question was kind of a hokey, gimmicky kind of thing, that it just was a cutesy way to organize a bunch of different texts. But, you know, now I see that as that's something really, you know, low effort, but high impact, just to pull that thread throughout every single text that you're doing of, we're reading these for a common purpose to help build knowledge at the end. So, so thank you for bringing that up because I, the elementary side, I see the exact same thing. Excellent. I'm not surprised. I, uh, if I was to go back, you know, if we were to go back and, and redo this, I've thought multiple times that I think that'd be something I would like to comment a bit more on is, is that essential question or, or a single, you know, linking, you know, thread across, across text. Well, and the figure that we include, it does start with that large essential question Figure so, two. Yeah, figure yes. two. Right. Not the scan path. Not the scan but, path, but the other one. But the uh, teacher sample. So maybe let's talk about figure two for a second. Now, obviously, the, the listeners here won't be able to see it, but we sort of provide a, a template of a, of a graphic organizer for how mindful reading might be used with a science text during like a secondary chemistry. I think, Eric, I think you were the spearhead on this one. Do you yes. want to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. The reason why... I decided to reach for science as an example, as opposed to history or language arts, is that we have learned that we need to have our science students do much more writing to demonstrate their comprehension. And that comprehension has to be goal-based. And so whenever we ask students, for instance, to jump on the highway of comprehension, and I call vocabulary the highway of comprehension, getting them to think, first of all, about what might be the most important vocabulary that they're going to pull from a reading and would use in that reading. That helps at least provide the guardrails, if you will, of where these readers are traveling. So the notion of scanning a reading, uh, surveying the text structure that might be there, the subtitles, uh, sometimes there are going to be figures in this kind of reading, to what degree is the author or are the authors connecting all of that to vocabulary? It just gives the students a sense of a larger structure. And then if they set up particular comprehension questions for themselves, particular issues they'd like to know better. For instance, here in the middle of this example, what is most important about chemical bonding, since that's the primary topic, should be the kind of question that a reader should be asking and wants to walk away with, well, at least this characteristic is especially important in chemical bonding, but it might be two or three characteristics. And by the time students get to the review portion, confirming their comprehension, they should be able to write at least a sentence, if not a short paragraph, that makes use of what they've learned based on the questions they set up for themselves, the reading goals that they had in mind, And a teacher would be able to check for understanding by using this as a kind of exit ticket. Are my students with me? Do they essentially understand the targets of this particular reading? And now can we make use of those targets in the lab? So I've confirmed comprehension through writing. Okay, now it's time Mm -hmm. to apply that information. 
and that application will be so much richer because they already have that that tech space where they already have some basic knowledge there. And, and I'm really glad in, in hindsight that we did a science text example here because I, you know, with the next generation science standards, um, I see huge potential there for text to be included. Of It's all about investigating phenomena. And so by sort of presenting a phenomena at the beginning and saying, why is it happening? Why is this happening in this specific way? And then rather than just sort of guess and checking till kids kind of get there, but now let's let's spend some time in some really rich text, several different texts that are going to help us build our understanding about why. Okay, you know, now can we understand what's going on? And then now can we apply it? I I see that that literature could be a really great segue to, to get to go from not knowing why phenomena is happening to having, you know, sort of a quote unquote book understanding and then merging into the application. So I really appreciate that that this is a science example. I think that's fantastic. Kit, did you have any other implications for goal-directed reading you wanted to talk about? Well, just to go back to the comment of on relevance and coherence. Again, I think students don't always understand what good readers do and how good reading should benefit them. So we know that good readers uh, notice discrepancies in a text. Good readers anticipate what's coming up, and when it doesn't show up, they sort of make a mental note that the text is going in, maybe in a different direction. I think teachers can talk about, uh, through think-alouds and modeling, that texts aren't perfect and, and authors may be less than coherent at times. So I think showing examples of maybe when a text shifts gears without a heading or some direction, uh, to put on out in front the notion that no text is perfect, but that readers consume that text really purposefully. So is it relevant to our goal? Does it help us answer our, our essential question? Or is it incidental? Maybe something we can set to the side. Does the text cohere around the topic or our purpose? Uh, that's when good readers stop, reread, go back, check. And that's what eye tracking is showing that many weak readers just kind of charge through the text without this uh, interaction with the text. Mm -hmm. And I think teachers can help students appreciate um, really what good readers do, even with less than perfect texts. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up this idea again of, of relevance and coherence. Those are words that we kind of throw around mm -hmm. a lot, but, you know, just to be clear, the relevance meaning of are details in the text relevant to what, you know, the central idea or the main mm -hmm. idea or, or the overall what the text is about. And again, that depends on the purpose of, of reading. You know, I, I, I you will read an Instagram post, you approach an Instagram post a lot different than... A cookie recipe, a lot different than you might uh, a published journal article. And so the the relevance, um, you know, a good reader can sort of cast, you know, ideas that matter less are less important in the mental model and ideas that matter more kind of float to the top. But then, you know, coherence of how consistent is the text in supporting that it's it's central theme or argument. Would, would, would that be an okay definition of relevance and coherence? Yeah, and I, I appreciate you're talking about the purpose of the text as written by the author or included in a, you know, an anthology or a textbook. Do we recognize the, that purpose and then our purpose? Sometimes those purposes align and we read intentionally to get from that text what is intended to do, like a cookie recipe. We wouldn't read it, you know, except to find out how to make cookies, right, for the most part. So um, students have to understand that, too, that they have a responsibility for consuming a text with a purpose and recognize the author had a purpose. Sometimes, most times, those should align. Sometimes they don't. We read a text for, for something else. So all of that, I think, is the an authenticity about how readers come to text and, and, and what they take away from them. Uh, so I wanted to provide a, a sort of an example and a non-example really quick to maybe try and, and compare and contrast this a little bit. So um, a great example that I've seen, one a really proficient third grade teacher that I work with, she is so good at directing the student's attention throughout a text. And, and you know, one major difference of the elementary world, third grade readers versus secondary is the, the, the chunks are just a lot shorter and more frequent of how often we're in text. So 
whenever she's, you know, if we're, if we're reading a passage or if we're reading part of a text to answer a specific question, or if we're looking for, you know, being able to identify the text structure, the author's purpose, before she does that, she'll just say something like, um, you know, when, when she's setting up, you know, we're going to read this chunk, watch for da 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 and, but she does that, I've noticed, I mean, almost with perfect consistency of, of whenever she's directing the students to read something, she's always saying, and watch for. So that way, when they circle back to it, once they've read it, it's super easy for, you know, for her to say, for her to connect back to that initial thing that she already said. And, and students do better with it because they knew what, they knew what to look for. Their attention knew what to hone in on. So it's almost a, a scaffold to help, you know, to help students you know, right out of the gate, but I, I see it making her instruction really efficient because kids are knowing, you know, where to look, mm -hmm. and especially with, um, you know, the Common Core State Standards, how, you know, close reading has become, um, you know, very popular right now. I think that could really easily have a place with, with close reading of when we're reading a text closely, rather than reading the text and then telling the students what they're supposed to be looking for or have them recall, have them actually processing or intaking that text with that goal in mind. So that was one example I want to provide, and I'm, I'm really proud of this teacher and, and what she does. In uh, the uh, secondary world, yeah. we simply called those uh, comprehension targets, and we would set those up just before students would enter a particular portion of text. Because as you can imagine, getting students to read outside of school is quite challenging <laughs> yeah. with our adolescents yeah. currently. So we have to do quite a bit in the mm -hmm. classroom. So you'll be pleased to know that your secondary colleagues are using many of those same techniques. Sure, that's great. And before we go to your non-example, just a couple things. Eye tracking um, has generally used very short, brief text, sometimes not even paragraph long. But now the eye tracking is looking at the reading of extended text. And that's part of the challenge in secondary uh, grades is that if students have not learned to maintain attention, have a goal, persevere through extended text, they're, they're really not ready for the kind of reading that's expected of them. So your example of the third grade teacher you know, highlighting or giving targets or direction, um, what my friend and I used to call uh, it re requires the teacher to read and monitor her own comprehension of the text in planning for how she was going to lead the students to think through the text. We call it thinking through the text. You read it first and monitor your own thinking, and then you're ready to help students uh, monitor their thinking. And I appreciate that because I think really we have to um, consider reading comprehension as a way of teaching students to think more deeply, more sophisticatedly. So um, I appreciate that notion that obviously that teacher had read and planned where she was going to mm -hmm. go with those students. And that's what in my work with here, that, that's exactly what, what we worked on is, is you're going to read the text first and, and see what that text affords and doesn't afford and, okay. and, and use that to really drive your instruction in conjunction with, with the curriculum and that it's, it's made for some really um, impactful instruction. So my my non-example this was this was with a kindergarten um, student, uh, well students where we I was I was helping deliver administer a, a test and with the, part of the test there was an, an oral language component to it and there was a short passage, and um, the instructions for the first read of the passage were were was just listen to this passage and then be prepared to answer questions. And that was, and that was the script you're supposed to give. And then I, you know, and then you read that passage out loud and it's six or seven sentences. It's not very long. And then, um, then there's a little recap where, um, you know, you say you're going to read, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to read the passage again. Um, but this time there's a little, just a short, you know, listen for details about, you know, X, Y, or Z. And to me, that's a little bit of a non-example. I mean, I like the repeated reading aspect, especially with a, a kindergarten student being able to, you know, listen to a text twice, and then they actually were required to write about it afterward. Um, but I think on that that first read-through, how simple would that be to just add, um, you know, listen for this text, or I'm going to read this text out loud to you. Please listen for X, Y, and Z so that this kindergarten student, this you know, novice in text, relatively novice with language, that they have something to grapple onto with what to focus on, what not to focus on, rather than trying to keep all seven or eight sentences in, in you know, in their brain all at once. 
Um, and, and, you know, that could be such a small tweak that I, I think would, would help out those little kindergartners processing a little bit. Well, that's where it begins. Our youngsters start thinking that reading is just try to remember everything. And no one can do that. That's not why we read, and that's not how we read. So if you don't have a main idea, which I'm very big proponent on, if they don't have the main idea, they don't have an anchor. They don't know what to do with all the minutia of details, or, um, and they can be very, very distracted. So if the little passage is, is about what we like to do on Sunday afternoons, and, and there's one mention of ice cream, you know, five-year-olds often will just say it was about ice cream because that was the most interesting or novel piece of the text. <laughs> so your example is if it's, even if teachers were just to say, you have to tell me, you have to find, you have to determine the main idea and then how things relate to the main idea is one step in, like you said, changing even that little assessment to be a little bit more directed. So I guess just to, to recap as we're winding down our, our vigorating conversation <laughs> is we're saying that mindful reading or goal-directed reading that when we're giving students read, we want them to have a specific purpose. And we advocate that that's going to have benefits of them being able to build their comprehension based on that initial target. So perhaps as we wrap up, um, let's each give one last pitch for, for <laughs> teachers of, of either what they can do or why um, why a mindful reading or goal-directed reading instruction could support the learners in their classroom. One of the practices that I try to reinforce with my pre-service teachers here at Utah State is the collection of several tried and true scaffolds that they have experimented with, they have actually tried these techniques out with students, that these become the heuristics by which students will learn themselves. Ultimately, we're trying to hand over more and more responsibility to readers. So they need scaffolds by which to get that done. And if they practice certain tried and true scaffolds well enough, and long enough, chances are that will probably be, or those will probably be some of the ways in which they are processing the information and can walk away not having to know everything that they've learned in the text, but specific important issues or uh, comprehension targets that deserve their attention. I suspect that's probably why we're living in such a challenging world of illiteracy people who can read but prefer not to because they don't always have the strategies that they need, nor are they perhaps practicing the ones that they already know. Absolutely. Kit, your final pitch. Hmm. A final pitch. Well, I think, again, I have to reiterate that teachers sometimes mistakenly communicate to students that reading is about getting through the text fast enough with enough accuracy or fluency when really, real reading is to enhance ourselves. We read to learn something, to enjoy something, to be inspired, to be able to solve problems. So I think teachers have to offset this. It's a completion task that the teacher assigns and the students abide by to what do real readers do? Why do they read? How do they read? Can we communicate that? So I think we have to model and support more thoughtful engagement in general. And one way to do that is thoughtful, engaged reading with text that hopefully enhance our lives and improve ourselves in some way. I, I would like to ask kindergartners and third graders and fifth graders or 12th graders why and how do you read and see what they say because i would hope that for some of them and we know from eye tracking and other research that thoughtful readers do get more out of the text and and take away from the text so i think it's really making students thoughtful engaged readers as best we can across all of our students that's excellent um, i would just i would chip in that i view this as something that is is really simple to do. I, I, I don't think integrating this into instruction is very hard, but I, it helps clarify for everyone, for the teacher and for the students of 
you know, the purpose of our instruction for the next however long it is, is we're centering around this thing. And, um, you know, if, if a teacher, you know, if they're teaching from a curriculum, those that curriculum's going to be aligned with the core. And so I think being able to pick out those core standards and being able to have those as, as goal-directed or mindful mm-hmm. targets throughout um, could be a really, uh, you know, s- small effort, but, but high yield of how to support readers' comprehension. So... Thank you, Eric and Kit, for being on the uh, Teaching Literacy podcast today. I mean, I, I should say, because we're formal at the end, I, doctors, doctors more, <laughs> Dr. Moore, Dr. Moore, thank you for joining me on the Teaching Literacy podcast. Uh, last question, Eric, what do you think makes a good teacher? I thought about this for a few minutes, and I decided to state it this way. So we provide an example in our article here in Figure 2 of what it might reading might look like in terms of certain particular skills, surveying, uh, questioning, setting up goals, uh, reading to locate answers to those questions, reviewing at the end, why did I read this? How is this going to help me as I move forward? So I think good teachers always begin with the end in mind. What do they, what skills do they target? What do they hope their students ultimately will be able to do? Because we talk about lifelong learners. So I think teachers should consistently ask themselves the questions, how will my students and their skill development help them build a better life for themselves, but also for their families? Because ultimately, these comprehension skills we're talking about give them access to information that otherwise they may not have had. And this gives them, I think, the potential for a better quality of life. Thank you. Kit, what do you think makes a great teacher? I think a great teacher, and I appreciate your mentioning, you know, keeps the end game in mind. And I think the end game is teaching kids how to think, how to think in more sophisticated ways. And tests are only uh, one mode of that process. But teaching kids to think, that's what good teachers do. Love it. After our conversation, I think I should change that to a how or a why question. (laughs) Dr. Eric Moore, Dr. Kit Moore, thanks for joining me on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank Thank you. you, Always a pleasure. A great big thank you to Dr. Moore and Dr. Moore for joining me on the show. I had a great time making that episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, I feel like you've gotten a lot more than two cents out of me the last little bit on this show, so I'm going to try and keep my two cents tonight brief. But the first thing I wanted to talk about was uh, thinking about our attention as a spotlight. And I remember my undergraduate um, educational psychology course, there was a passage in the textbook that talked about our attention being a spotlight. And that spotlight can kind of focus in or be more diffused. But in the end, that our, our attention really can only focus on one thing at a time um, really well. And I, I we didn't necessarily talk about this in the show or, or even you know reference it this way in the article we wrote. But I, I, I go back to that quite a bit when I'm thinking of when I'm delivering reading instruction, when I'm supporting a teacher delivering reading instruction, um, how often we sort of forget that, that we just are reading a text to just read a text. And I, I, I think that we're leaving a lot of uh, student development on the table when we're doing that. Whereas if we go towards a text with a specific purpose, that we're trying to glean X or we're trying to learn Y or we're wanting to focus on this one thing, um, I think that we can really gain a lot more out of that. Both us and the students can have a richer experience with that text if we're approaching a text with a with something specific that that we are that we're looking for. Um, too often, I've been guilty of you know with my reading curriculum of looking at it and saying, "All right, what is it? What is it wanting me to teach this week?" Versus, you know, I I think my students need a little bit of help in this area, or or wow, this text really provides this thing in a really interesting dynamic way. I want to make sure that I I really align my instruction towards that. So I would just recommend that uh, you think about how you can be intentional with text when you're teaching text. What is your goal directed lesson planning look like 
to help support your students' goal-directed reading. And I think, um, I really think that by doing that, we can uh, support our students a little bit better in the, in the text that we're expecting them to read. My second scent focuses around how complex comprehension is. I know I've spent a lot of time talking about comprehension lately on the podcast, but my brain just just keeps going back to it that all of these other foundational skills of reading matter a whole ton. Phonemic awareness and phonics and fluency. I, I will never discount any of those for a second because you have to have those down to really, for the most part, be a really great comprehender. But um, comprehension in itself is a, is a really complex process, but when we're thinking about it as being goal-directed, that really helps, I think, clarify what our purpose is when we're teaching reading comprehension, is we're not necessarily teaching skills or strategies, or we're not even teaching really main idea or author's craft or text structure. All of those are just vehicles to getting to that goal, the content that's supposed to be learned, or the the story that's supposed to be understood. That That's the end goal, is we're wanting our students to understand and to build knowledge. And then we can kind of reverse engineer that to say, how can I use author's craft to do that? Or how can I help my students construct a you know main idea with supporting details to do that? But in the end, the main goal is, do they understand the text? in rich, complex, and nuanced ways? And if the answer is yes, then the vehicles that we're using to get them there is working. If the answer is no, then we should reevaluate our instruction. But I really feel that that um, is a good measuring stick to judge whether our instruction is effective or not. And I think by helping support our students to be goal-directed with their reading, through us being goal-directed with our instruction, that we can can support them um, in rich, complex and nuanced ways. That is all I have for today. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I wish you all the best of luck. It's summer vacation here where I'm at, so I'm hoping you get a little bit of break this summer and are ready to get back at it at the fall. Until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.